0: When you Angie that, download the free Angie Mobile app today or visit angie.com. That's angi.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com.
2: You are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Not in good spirits this week. Um, Every week before I tape the podcast, I do a last minute check of my favorite news sites to make sure that Any story that I'm planning to speak about, if it has any updates or just to see if um, anything wild or crazy has happened that, you know, needs to be addressed on this episode as opposed to the next one. Sometimes things just can't wait. And I'm taping at 4 p.m. in L.A. on Monday. And most of the day I've been glued to my laptop starting at 9 a.m. this morning. I had back to back to back to back interviews, people I was interviewing, people interviewing me. I'd heard about something. I wasn't sure what had happened in Minnesota. And I guess in my naivete, I was like, oh, it must have something to do with the George Floyd trial. I I read something about a taser instead of a gun in Minnesota. And I was like, oh, did they tase him too? I never heard about a taser. Only the, the four officers pinning him down, one with a knee on his neck. So I was like, there was a taser. Like they tortured that man, like worse than what we saw on video. But as it would turn out, there is Jesus yet another incident. I'm like, you're in the middle. I, I just referred to it as the George Floyd trial. That is not the correct name. It is the trial of, of Derek Chauvin, who is the police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck. George Floyd, a murdered black man, is not on trial. Please excuse me for misspeaking, but a police officer, a woman, it seems in Minnesota, she pulled over a 20 year old kid and I refer to him as a kid because he's young enough to be my son. He's 20 and had a kid, a son who no longer has a father, but he was pulled over apparently for having an air freshener hanging from his rear view mirror. He was pulled over. He had some outstanding warrants, notably a gross misdemeanor, not a felony. But I guess he tried to get back into his car during the arrest because he was like, this is some bullshit, which the story, which appears to be backed up by what I've read of the body cam video from the officers. I don't watch murder videos. It's just not good for my well-being. But the officer says, taser, taser, and she pulls out what she says she believed to be a taser. And fires it. It turns out it was actually her gun. She shoots the 20 year old. He drives off. There was a woman in the car with him, but he drives off for a couple blocks. He hits a car. Not sure if it was parked or not. In my head, I just envisioned it as parked, but it may or may not have been. He dies. She is taken away in an ambulance. I hope she is physically stable. I imagine you can't be mentally such if you. You know, see someone get shot in front of you. But yeah, that's that's the story. The officer has been placed on administrative leave, which I was like, how you mistake your version, your taser for your gun? Um, she's allegedly a senior officer. I just saw her referred to as such. It didn't say how long she had been on the force. But like you shot somebody and killed them and you got administrative leave. People been fired from the gap for not folding fast enough. But somehow a police officer mistakes a taser for a gun and murders someone, murders a 20 year old and gets administrative leave. You get to go home and still collect your check and pay all your bills on time. That sounds right to y'all. I heard Minnesota was on fire again, which, you know, people over property, Stop killing black people, and they'll stop burning down the cities. There's only a couple things black people riot over. Police killing a black person who did either nothing at all wrong or some minor insignificant shit that it would have been a waste of time to fill out paperwork over. Or not convicting police officers who were blatantly in the wrong for the killing or mistreatment of a black person. Oh, and, like, assassinating a black leader. But is there anything else that that black people have rioted over in mass? Stop acting a fucking fool. Stop treating black people like shit. They'll stop burning down your cities. Poor kid. Dante Wright, 20 years old. I usually don't cry over these things. Um, I never watched the George Floyd video. I've never seen more than a snippet of it. If I see it on like I'll close my laptop. I'll change the channel. I accidentally saw Ahmad Arbery's killing just cause I didn't somebody sent it to me and I didn't know what it was. But I read this story and I just I just broke down and cried. Like everybody else. I'm just so over this shit. Why like why compulsively can you just not stop killing black people? Jesus Christ. And I think I'm a little bit on edge because I just watched exterminate the brutes on HBO. We talked about that um, that four-part series that tells, for lack of a better description, but it will make sense to you, the conquered and the colonized, from their perspective, it makes white people sound like absolute trash, with like example on example on example on example. And the core premise, I don't know if we got into super detail about this when we talked before, but the core premise of it, and I'm not spoiling any of it, is... White people's superiority and entitlement complex comes from them making superior weaponry and being able to kill more people faster than other nations. And they ran with their industrial superiority and applied it to the superiority of their race And just started believing their own hype. And it's gone wild since then. They talk about the Holocaust. Because you know. One of the great atrocities of humankind. But they were like oh no. Genocide is not just you know Nazi Germany. Here behold. The long list of genocides that white people have carried out. For the last 500 years. And the list just goes on. And on. And on. And on. So. Watching this film about the atrocities that white folks have pulled on, basically everyone with melanin all over the world for like 500 years already had me pissed off. And then I couldn't go to sleep one night. And so I was up until like 4 o'clock in the morning watching them, this new horror anthology. on. It's about a black family that moves from North Carolina to Compton when Compton was still white. So they are the pioneers or at least one of the early pioneers in this all-white neighborhood. Nice, black, nice brown black family of four. A dad, a mom, and two daughters. It's 10 episodes, so a week and a half of their life. I wrote a review on, on my social media pages, so I won't completely recap it for you. You can read it there if you want. At Demetria L. Lucas on Instagram or Facebook. It's on both of them. It's one of the most traumatic things I've ever seen. I was really critical of it at first because I was like, yo, this is just trauma porn. And then I had to think about it and I was like, why am I having such a visceral reaction to this? Two reasons. I'm not comfortable, I guess, watching horror in general. I didn't really grow up on it. I never liked Freddy Krueger. I never liked Jason. I never liked the Scream films. It's just not my thing. But now that we have this rash of horror or thriller or sci-fi even films featuring black folk, I'm like, all right, well, I'm trying to root for everybody black. So I'll check it out and see what it is, which is why I watched them just because it was black folks. I realized watching this that I don't like black folks in horror. And that's not to say that I think that they shouldn't be in horror. I did like Get Out. I did like Lovecraft Country. I really liked Lovecraft a lot. But the premise of horror, like why it works when it's done well, is to play on your fears. In the horror genre, the protagonists are tortured, essentially. They're they're dragged through the cliche mud. All sorts of terrible, crazy shit happens to them. And maybe they survive, maybe they don't. I don't like seeing black people essentially tortured. Like I get that's the genre. I respect it. Not trying to change it. I don't like it. I just I just don't. And part of it is because black people's day to day living, there's absolutely or hopefully, you know, joy and good times and and self-care and all of those things. But a lot of black folks conditions just ain't good. Like, even if, like, you know, your bills are paid and you live in a safe area and you're not in a food desert and you have insurance and good health and a job with benefits and all of that, like, it's still just, like, a nonstop string of potential microaggressions. Like, I I live in a nice building. There's other black people in the building. I didn't move to the black side of town when I moved to L.A., but I did pick a neighborhood and then a different neighborhood. So I originally moved to North Hollywood, and then because my neighbors were loud as shit, one of who was black. Then I moved downtown, which there's, all, there's like a lot of black people down here, none of them from L.A. That's not the point. The point is, the other day, I went downstairs to the front desk, and I was asking to see someone in the leasing office. We had an appointment, and the woman asked me, she said, oh, are you, are you here for low-income housing? No. She saw me get off the elevator, which means I was already in the building. As a matter of fact, I went downstairs and when the elevator doors opened, I don't know if it was like the whoosh of the wind from the doors. Like I felt it all on my face and I was like, oh shit, I don't have my mask. And I literally said mask and like got back in the elevator, back back up into the elevator. I didn't even get all the way out. I saw the woman at the front desk, like lift up her head and look. Cause like, you know, someone just kind of like shrieked in the lobby. I came back down and I was like, oh, Sorry. I left my mask upstairs. And then I said, I'm here to see XYZ. We have an appointment. And that's when she said, she was like, oh, you're here for low-income housing? And I tell you that story to just be like, yo, the microaggressions, like even when you think that you're in like a safe enough space, an okay space, like a familiar space. And the woman wasn't white. She's Asian. Some, It's like anything can happen because you're black or anything can happen and it leaves you questioning Did that happen because I'm black? I said something to the lady at the leasing office uh, when I got in contact with her. And I was like, hey, this is the situation that happened. She sent a note and she was very apologetic. And then she called and she, you know, apologized again. And she said, you know, I spoke to the woman and she wants to apologize to you if you want to come meet us downstairs and really sorry. And she didn't mean to offend. And I was like, yo, the idea of standing in front of some woman while she apologizes to me like while basically she explains like she wasn't being a racist when I'm pretty sure she was being racist I was like I don't want to put myself through that shit and I was like no I'm good I'm glad you spoke to her so she doesn't insult anyone else you know that's all I really want and left it at that so watching this show which is largely about black people having issues in this all-white neighborhood and saying issues is just completely underselling it but Without giving too much away, like, the two girls go to school. They're the only black girls in their class. They have microaggression on microaggression. And the horror that they experience just being black girls in this all-white environment. I'm watching these horrible things happen to the daughters in school. And I'm like, you know, this is, it's not so far-fetched from reality. Remember the story about the wrestler They wouldn't let him wrestle because he had locks. And so he agreed to cut off his locks in the middle of the game. And someone filmed it. And this white woman came over and she just was like snatching his hair and just like chopping it off like the way you would. I don't know. I'm more delicate when I cut my flower stems. That's a person and that hair is attached to his head. Or I think about like all the studies and stories you hear of kids, black kids just doing kid stuff and the police are called on them they are arrested or i think about there was this viral video a while ago where this this white police officer just flung this black girl i want to say she was in her chair but he just like flung the shit out of her like she was like he was fighting a man as opposed to like a teenage girl so i thought of that and then i was thinking about Well, there's so much that happened. I mean, it's just a really violent, violent show. But I just thought about how so many of the things that they were depicting and it's set in 1950 are just as relevant in 2021. Your fictional depiction of of horror, the most horrifying things that could ever happen to anyone, like you watch it and you're just like, oh, my God, it's terrible. And then you scroll and search the Internet long enough and you find like the exact same story that happened to somebody in real life. And it's like, yo, black living is really sometimes like a horror show you can't wake up from. It's just scene after scene after scene, story after story after story, and it just never fucking ends. And I just finished the the show yesterday. So it's something I've been thinking about. I, I posted a review on my socials this morning. And so, you know, there's been an ongoing conversation about it all day, um, that I've been reading as I've, you know, in between interviews, just checking in. And so that was, you know, in the forefront of my mind when I read the article about Minnesota. And that's why I burst into tears. I think it's just like, like black living is a fucking horror show. Like you think you're, you know, going to the convenience store to buy whatever with a 20, the person thinks your 20 is counterfeit calls the police and 10 minutes later, you're dead. You're driving with a woman in the car. I don't know if it was his lady, his child's mama, a friend, whoever it was. You, you go out for the day. You're going to run your errands. The police spot you with an air freshener hanging from your rear view. Officer says she thought she tased you. She kills you instead. If that ain't horror, what the fuck is? What the fuck is? So I'm sorry. We started on a, a sad note. I mean, that's that's, that's all I got.
0: When you Angie that download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com at Saks.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at com.
2: I want to talk about this Kid Cudi performance that was on Saturday Night Live. He wore a dress to perform. It's an ugly dress. It was a floral sundress. Apparently he and Virgil from Off-White, that's who made the dress, have a collaboration coming out. And so he wore the dress both as homage to Kurt Cobain, but also to build buzz I wrote about the dress. My mentions have been on shambles on uh, Instagram and Facebook ever since. It went viral on Facebook. There was 100,000 reads yesterday. I think it was up to 1,500 comments last time I checked. Maybe 17. I just I stopped looking because the comments were so crazy. Basically, Kid Cudi performed in this dress, and a lot of men just had full fucking meltdowns. About this man in a dress and the agenda to destroy black men and emasculate black men and the destruction of the black family and all sorts of shit. And I was like, or the mofo just wanted to wear a dress. If you go back and look at Kid Cootie's fashion, he's he's always been a little out there. He's always been a little different. And I don't mean different bad. I just mean different different. But never a dress. There's a couple of pictures of him in like crop tops. Nice abs. Very 80s, to be quite honest. The people just had freaking meltdowns. I'm going to save that conversation, though. One of the interviews that I did earlier today was with my friend David Johns from the National Black Justice Coalition. We'll talk to him on Friday and get a breakdown of like, why these men just so goddamn mad over a man in a dress? You don't want to wear a dress? Nobody's trying to force you into a dress. But why are you so upset about what this other grown ass man is doing? If he wanna wear it, why can't he? I mean he did. And you mad and it ain't doing nothing. You just mad. That's all. So I want to talk about that in a little more detail. I also want to talk about this article on the Grio about Patrice Colors. She is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. She bought a house in Los Angeles for Either $1.3 or $1.4 million. I've seen both numbers reported. But people are outraged. Black woman, That this married black woman. There's a dual income situation here. But that this married black woman. Who is one of the leaders of an activist organization. Has had the audacity. To buy this expensive house. And apparently she has a couple other homes too. But people are. I wouldn't necessarily say accusing. Their insinuating that she has been taking money from BLM or getting money from some nefarious source that she should not be getting money from. People are very upset that she has enough money to buy this home and other homes. I think it's worth looking into. I would think it would be helpful to the organization if she was transparent and was like, this is where my money comes from. It is legal wage, legal tender. She could also tell everyone to go fuck themselves that her money is her business. That's also an option. But I think being transparent about it might be more helpful for her in the long run. I also wondered too, because this inquiry into her money and this new knowledge about this house that she just bought, it comes on the heels of... Last week, we were talking about Tamika Mallory, another activist, there was an outcry about Tamika appearing in a Cadillac commercial and taking corporate dollars. She responded to that on Instagram, and she, she was like, yes, the, my work with Cadillac aligns with my mission for the freedom of Black folk. It is a way to raise awareness, and Cadillac also cut a check for $10 million to help Black folks at various organizations. So she was like, don't get it twisted. I was like, okay, ma'am, we hear you. I would love it if Patrice would be that transparent just to shut people the fuck up. Because they're really not going to stop digging until she addresses it. But again, she also has the right to say, go fuck yourselves. I also want to say this too. When people hear the number 1.3 million or 1.4 million, it's definitely a lot of money. Like, let's not pretend to anything else. But people should just be mindful that a $1.4 million home in California is a starter home. It's it's a comfortable home. If you've seen the pictures of the house on the internet, this is not a mansion. It's a three-bedroom house, an older house. It's a comfortable home for a small family. And I know that sounds crazy. Just keep in mind, I live in LA. My plan was to buy a townhouse in Atlanta. And then things started going well for me in LA. So I was like, well, maybe I'll just buy a place here. And I knew it was gonna be more than a townhouse in Atlanta. But I went looking in DTLA just to like see what's out there. There's a real estate office around the corner from my building. And so one day I was walking by and I was just like looking at the notices in the window. A single floor loft, so big open floor plan, not newly renovated. Lost are nine times out of 10 in older buildings. So nothing fancy about it, just like a big ass space. I would say probably between like 1250 square feet and 1400, not on a high floor, not with a view. Not in a luxury building where you have like rooftop access or a gym or a pool, any of those things. Just like the basics of the basics in DTLA, which I love because it reminds me just a teensy tiny bit of New York. Every once in a while, I can hear someone yell, fuck you for no apparent reason. And it just makes me feel home again. Home is in Brooklyn. But this type of space, minimum, 600000 600000 in most other cities in the country, obviously not San Francisco, obviously not New York, obviously not D.C., many other places, you're getting some nice house. Especially if you're on the suburbs of a good city, you're going to get a nice space. You go, your house is going to look like 600,000 of house. 600 in Houston, you're in a goddamn palace. 600 on the outskirts of Atlanta, you're not in a palace, but you're in a big-ass house. No, no. No, no. It's, a, it's not even a one-bedroom in L.A. So when you hear numbers like, oh, my God, she's living in this house. It's $1.3 million. It's a three-bedroom house, y'all. Nice. Not bad at all. But it's not the tricked-out house that you're picturing. Like, oh, my God, she's living high on the hog. It's L.A. A million dollars, it just don't go as far. I'd also like to say this, and then I'll move on from this subject. When Rosa Parks was 81, she was living in Detroit. Her home was broken into. The founder of Little Caesars, Little Caesars is a Detroit-based business. He put Rosa Parks up in an apartment in a secure building in downtown Detroit when she passed away, which is over 10 years ago. And again, Detroit. Detroit real estate is relatively cheap. One of my favorite baby cousins, Kevin, is a realtor there. Excellent taste. He ain't gonna sell you no bullshit. That's it. The founder of Little Caesars put Rosa Parks up in a downtown apartment and was paying $2,000 a month, which means she was in a cute place, probably with a good view. She was living well. Based on him doing that, I don't think Rosa Parks was able to do that for herself. Rosa Parks is like the mother of the civil rights movement. Somebody had to pay Rosa Parks rent. This idea that activists should take some sort of vow of poverty, that they should live in, I don't know, some sort of shambles. They're not monks. They're not priests. They're not pastors. If they can collect good coin, good legal coin, why not? I'm just saying, you really don't want your activists out here broke as fuck. Nor should they be. The shit I've dealt with for the last 24 hours, like I've been writing online all my opinionated shit, which all has to do with, you know, gender, sexuality, dating, relationships, whatever, all those sorts of things. Anything to do with culture or moving the needle on culture always tends to piss people off. But yesterday, over Cuddy in that damn dress, People lost their whole fucking minds in a way I haven't seen in a really long time. It's just a day for me. I'm pretty used to it by now. It was a higher level of vitriol. It was meaner. But at this point, and in this mind state I'm currently having, it's just like, yeah, all right. 40 degree day. What I got yesterday was mostly sexism and homophobia. But activists, especially black woman activists, when you have like... A bunch of white people and a bunch of non-black people coming at you with racism. And then you got a bunch of black men coming at you with sexism. And then you got people from any group coming at you with homophobia. It's a lot. You add on to that the scrutiny that comes with press. You add on to that literally going to protest. You add on to that literally getting arrested. That's a lot for one person to deal with. Let them folks make their coins and find their self-care and their comfort and their peace and have their sanctuaries where they can find them. They deserve that. They deserve that. So I hope that she'll be transparent about whatever's going on. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. I'm also from the school of thought that, you know, trust your neighbor but guard your camel. Which means, you know, I don't put nothing past nobody. Not even myself. I'm capable of some wild shit. I'm just saying. So let's see how that plays out. Last but not least, certainly, I wanted to talk about this hijab ban that may or may not happen in France. France is, I don't know exactly how their whole government works, but I think it's a similar setup to how we are, that there's at least two houses. One of them has passed a bill that will prohibit women under 18 from wearing a hijab, having their hair covered in public. There has been international outcry about this. I don't particularly follow France's politics very closely, but I follow a few women who cover their hair on Instagram and they've all been speaking out about it. There's a whole hashtag. Where's the hashtag? I want to tell you what the hashtag is. So if you're interested, you can find out more information. Hashtag hands off my hijab. And so France's reasoning for this, they're saying that women are being forced to wear the hijab, and so they're interfering to protect Muslim women from being controlled. Muslim women are pissed. Pissed. So today we are going to talk to Imani Bashir. She is a black American Muslim journalist whose work has graced the pages of the New York Times, Glamour Magazine, Travel and Leisure Magazine, and many more. In her work, she focuses on centering identity and calling for much-needed representation. She is a five-time expat currently based in Cancun, Mexico with her husband and four-year-old son. Now, if you are not familiar with Imani Bashir's name, probably familiar with her story. There was a story last year, you remember about a black travel writer who was fired for traveling outside of the country, and I was like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, this story don't make no damn sense, what you mean? And the crazy part of it is that one of the reasons she was hired is because she lived in so many different countries. The job liked that she was a global citizen, but then when she moved to a new place, they were like, "Mm, no. So if you remember that story, that's Amani Bashir. She's not here today to talk about not exactly travel. She's here to, She's here with me today to talk about Muslim women who wear their hijab and what this situation is in France and why it's just so damn crazy. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Imani Bashir to Ratchet and Respectable. Imani, I am so excited to have you on Ratchet and Respectable today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
3: I'm really excited to be a part of this
2: conversation. And there's so much to this conversation. I I have not been keeping up. Let me just be completely transparent. I have not been keeping up with the quote unquote burqa bans going on in Europe. But this most recent one that's happening in France with the hijab, it's all over my social media timeline. People who are not usually talking about it are talking about it a lot.
3: So, what happened um in France is that pretty much the Senate passed something to which they have the stipulations that anyone under the age of eighteen cannot wear the hijab in public. And so they it's currently an amendment to a law that was introduced to address what they call religious extremism. But obviously, we know that's a bunch of bullshit. And what they're saying is also, I think, a part of the law as well, or I'm I'm sorry, a part of the amendment as well, is that any woman that is wearing the hijab can't accompany her children either to school or on,
2: on field trips or something outlandish is really asinine. France's sort of reasoning for this is that they are trying to protect girls and women, that the hijab represents Women's inferiority to men. That's their reasoning here. Many people say otherwise. I've been following the hashtag and they're like, nope, this is Islamophobia, plain and simple.
3: And and not only that, to that end, because if we are going to call a spade a spade, if you are pretty much restricting hijab, it's tailored towards women. What are you doing as far as men is concerned? So ultimately, what it is that they're doing is that they are literally showing how it is that they feel about women, not how they feel about the religion, not how they feel about extremism. So it has nothing to do with hijab. And specifically, if anybody were to actually read about hijab, number one, it is something that's mandated for both men and women. It's not just necessarily the scarf that is worn on the head. The scarf that's worn on the head is called a kimar. Hijab is literally a state of being. It's how you speak. It's your decorum. It's how you act. It's how you treat other people. And then also it uh, accompanies the modesty of your dressing. But modesty in terms of hijab is so expansive that they just limit it to this scarf on your head or this veil that you put in front of your your face or any of those things and how it is that you're dressed. And ultimately, if you want to protect girls and women, you can protect them by allowing them the opportunity. Option to choose and make the decisions for themselves.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that sort of strikes me in all of this is that you're trying to tell a group that you can't tell women how to dress, but then also at the same time telling women how to dress.
3: Yeah. Like, how are you telling me that I'm oppressed, but then you're oppressing me for making the decision that I want to make for myself? Make it make sense.
2: Well, here's the million dollar question, because I think like a lot of people Who are not familiar familiar with Islam or not familiar with Muslim culture, they do look at women who have their hair covered or women who are, um, you know, in burqa, and they they say that you know no woman wants to dress like that. Like they're forcing the women to cover up. Like this is a choice or is it forced?
3: It's interesting because there are so many women that I know that wear the niqab. Niqab is the uh, veiling that covers from the nose all the way down, right? Some women are not even married and choose to wear niqab. Some women that I know are literally young women that choose to wear niqab. So literally it goes to show the expansiveness of choice and people really don't pay attention to the actual, um, teachings of Islam. They don't practice, you know, the religion, so they don't know, or maybe they just refuse and and just willingly like to be ignorant. And so a lot of things that we talk about in terms of women and Islam and oppression comes from cultural things. In certain people's cultures, men With the patriarchy and misogyny, they choose to use certain teachings the same way that they use Christianity against black people and enslaved black people. That wasn't necessarily the teachings of Jesus. But if I can twist and turn certain things to make it seem like this is how you're supposed to be, this is how you're supposed to act, no women can't do this, no women can't drive. If you look at the history of Islam, literally the men that we revere as prophets in their prophethood got their teachings from women. One of the most revered prophets, his first wife was a boss, Khadijah. She literally had her own business. She employed him. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, women in Islam and things of that nature, let's get down to it. Women literally are held three times after God. That is written in the doctrine. It is God, the mother, the mother, the mother, the father. It is literally written in the doctrine that paradise lies at the mother's feet, not at the father's feet, at the mother's feet. And there are so many other things that really speak to how it is that women are held in the high regard and high standards, especially as scholars in this particular faith. And unfortunately, like I said, because culturally you have certain aspects where men have used Um, certain things, especially women's modesty. Women's modesty is a choice for themselves. If I choose to put a scarf on my head, it is literally not because I am worried about what somebody has to say or how it is that they're going to look at me. It's because I literally am standing up because I am the face for my faith. You can see any man in this religion and not know that he's Muslim, but when you identify me as an hijab wearing woman, I am wearing my faith proudly and I am representing who it is that I am holy. And so I don't get a chance to hide or blend in, but I choose not to because I want people to know who it is that I am and what it is that I represent. And so when you see women making the choice to wear a burqa, to wear hijab, they are doing that out of bravery. But not only that, they are doing that because they are standing for something that is much bigger than them and it is godly.
2: Do you think there would ever be like a the u s would ever try to do a Muslim ban not a Muslim ban because we tried that already um a, a burqa ban or or a um or a, a hijab ban hijab ban absolutely not
3: because let me tell you this dimitri and I'm gonna be one hundred percent frank you're never Especially when you have black Muslims, black Muslims that come from generational revolution, black Muslims that come from generational, we are going to fight literally the, 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 DNA of black history and Islam in this country has always been revolutionary and we ain't taking nobody's shit. I wish somebody would say that I can't wear my hijab because we going to get some tables flipping up in here. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a totally different spectrum when we talk about it, because unfortunately, even when we're talking about France, where are the men at? Where are the men at? Because I'm going to be calling for the men in my community to stand up. You're not about to be sitting down. Somebody going to tell tell your wives, your sisters, your nieces, your daughters that they can't, you know, be who it is that they are. You better get in line and you better make sure that you're the ones that are saying whatever it is that needs to be said in protection of us, because I guarantee you the women are always going to speak and the women are never going to allow somebody to tell us who it is that we can and cannot be. Wait, where
2: are the men in this whole France thing? Because you're absolutely exactly. right. Like, I've only seen women talking about it. But literally every oppressive system, you
3: take the women down because the men obviously, can't look, where are they doing? Where are they saying? How are they pushing back? Why are the men not the ones at the forefront in this particular fight to say you're not going to do this to our women? That's one of the main conversations that I feel like is not being had. And it's a conversation that if you look in Sudan, if you look in Egypt, if you look at every Islamic society where something has happened with women, where have the men been?
2: Crickets part of me is comforted and then like okay that's not just a u.s thing but then also like as a woman i'm just horrified that that's just like a worldwide thing absolutely it's a pestilence it's an absolute pestilence
3: and for me it just speaks to a great you know what i mean it's a it's a greater issue that is impacting us everywhere where women do not feel protected. And right now, we are seeing it in real time. And for me, like I said, people don't have to look at it as being a France or hijab or Muslim women problem. Look at this as a global problem for women, period. Trans women, Black women, Muslim women, Jewish women. I don't care who it is. We always are at the bottom of the food chain in terms of protection.
2: Damn. You have traveled and lived all over the world. You're currently living in Mexico. Are there places, and even compared to the United States, where it is more challenging to practice hijab than others?
3: You know what? For me, I can really assert the fact that I do have privileges as an American, right? Although I am a Black American, I still am an American, so that blue passport and this clear spoken English has a level of privilege that certain people just don't have, and that's an actual factual reality, right? But at the same time, I make it a point to wear my hijab every single place that I go in the world because I want people to see me. I want people to see me coming. You see this Black Muslim woman, and maybe you'll have questions. I've lived in Some places where people are like, How? I've lived in Poland, I've lived in China, I've lived in Egypt, I've lived, you know what I mean? I've literally lived all around the world and made sure that my hijab was completely visible simply because I want to see how people are going to react. I want to know the questions that people may particularly have because they may have never seen a Muslim or may have never seen a black Muslim for that matter because people don't know the history that over 70% of enslaved people that came. Um, that were forcefully brought over to the Americas were Muslim people. And if you go to the African-American History Museum in D.C., you will literally see Quran from enslaved people. You will see vicar beads, the beads that we use to call upon, you know, the, the grace of God. You will see all of these things. But people don't tell you that in the history. It's as if we're obsolete, especially black Muslims. We're obsolete. We just got here or we converted because somebody went to prison. Did you grow up Muslim? I was born and raised Muslim. I come from three generations. When did you first start covering your hair? Oh, girl. So (laughs) I was a late bloomer. um, So I started maybe like in my earlier 20s. Okay. And I'll be headed, I'll be 35 this year. So just to
2: give, you know, a point of reference. You said you started late. So this, this is something that you chose to do. Clearly, this is not something that was forced upon you by your family. Absolutely. Why did you make that choice?
3: When it came down to it for me, you know, I was I was heading into my career and originally, you know, I didn't fully understand what hijab meant and I didn't want to do anything. And I was always taught specifically by my father, because, you know, I want to mention that because he's a man. I had to understand my connectivity to God solely that Mm -hmm. that was an individual journey. And that he couldn't impede upon that journey. So, him forcing me to wear hijab and I didn't fully understand what it meant or how it impacted me or my relationship to God just didn't make sense. And so, growing up in a non Muslim society, you know, I wanted to have my hair out and I wanted to, you know, explore and I wanted to really like push the boundaries of my deen, of my faith, because I really wanted to understand how it impacted me. And ultimately, when I got into my career, I said, I have to be that catalyst for change. I have big shoes to fill. I have paternal grandparents who literally had to go to court to fight to keep their names. I am coming from a lineage of people who were enslaved and still fasted during the holy month of Ramadan. I carry the name Imani. It means faith. My last name Bashir means bringer of good news. And so as somebody who literally is a journalist and telling stories and going out and being impactful, the best way for me to show up wholly as myself and represent my faith, I felt like I needed to wear it so that people knew exactly who it is that I was when they
2: saw me coming. Did people's perception of you change once you started covering your hair?
3: I think their perception of me became better because I think they understood that I knew myself better once I began to wear hijab.
2: What do you want people who are listening to know about, maybe that's a too broad question, I'm going to ask it anyway. But what do you want people who are listening to know about the experience of of Black Muslim women in America?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Number one, we are fighting to see ourselves. There are Black Muslim women in so many different industries, and we don't know anything about them. You know, I, I literally be 35 years old, and I still have yet to feel comfortable in knowing that I see myself. I'm a mother now. I have four nieces. I am literally still battling with how come we don't have a sitcom with a Black Muslim woman? I would have loved to see a Black Muslim woman on somewhere like Insecure, talking about sex, talking about, you know, the things that we really talk about, kiki and with their girlfriends. I would love to see a Black Muslim woman, you know, in the, you know, in the news and not necessarily as a story, but someone who is telling the news when you flip the channel, someone who's hosting E! Red Carpet. I want the expansiveness that everybody else is looking for in terms of when we're talking about diversity and, and inclusion. I want to see us in marketing and just not, you know, East African women because I feel like East African women are so fetishized right now, especially in the makeup and, the, you know, in the beauty and the fashion industry. But I want you to actually appreciate what it is that we have to say out of our mouths and not necessarily just how we look. With Muslim
2: women in general, you as a woman are reduced to your religion and that's it. Because even when you said now, you were like, you know, I kiki with my girlfriends, like I talk about sex, like all of those things. I was like, you never really think about that, like an association with like a Muslim woman.
3: No, because people, people are so limited to the view because it's so easy to take what it is that media says, as opposed to actually interacting with people in real life and in real time. And unfortunately that's how the marginalized stays marginalized because they're always spoken for, but they're never spoken to and never given the opportunity to speak. And so for me, you know, I'm, o- I'm only one person, but at the same time, I'm one person that is literally actively trying to make a point to say, listen, we're here and not only are we here, but we've been here our stories are expansive. They're needed. Our representation matters. And it's literally just a matter of people saying, you know what? I don't see a Muslim woman in the room. Why not? So many people are gung-ho for the Muslim women in France, but are you gung-ho for the Muslim women in the United States of America? If I ask people to name five, five Muslim women, period, In history, in the United States, you probably couldn't identify them. And then if you ask, hey, name five black Muslim women that are doing anything, you probably can't identify them. And why? Because the representation of us is still something that. Unfortunately, in our culture, we still don't accept. We still don't accept Muslim women here. We still don't accept hijab, you know, wearing women here. I started my career off in broadcasting, in radio, tried to matriculate into television and got all the excuses in the world as to me being so great. But the buck always stopped at some particular point because we do not allow Muslim women to just be. We don't have any Muslim women in the WNBA. I see tons of Muslim women that have played basketball and tons of Muslim women that have had to fight in order to be able to wear hijab because FEMA, the organization that is pretty much over, you know, athletics, didn't allow Muslim women to wear hijab while playing sports. We still see it with young girls that play soccer, that play other different, you know, sports in high school and middle school, that they're not allowed to compete with everybody else just simply because they wear hijab and people call it a safety issue. So when we talk about what's going on in France and everybody is so sad for women in France, why are you not sad for the women here? I ain't seen no sitcoms with no black Muslim women, I haven't seen any black Muslim women, you know, that are being presented in a way. I mean, the way that they have vilified Ilhan Omar, we act like we don't see it. But when it's happening somewhere else, we're like, oh, so sad. No, talk about how it is that you're treating us over here. Talk about how it is that you're trying to make us obsolete, that we're not a part of any kind of marketing unless we're white or Arab adjacent.
2: Sis, I've asked you all of my questions. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you want my listeners to know? My biggest thing is that reading is so important and really
3: getting a chance to know each other is vital. The reason that I've lived around the world and I've had the blessing and the privilege of really grooming a global citizen. My son is four. He's lived in five countries already. Is because I want him to understand that, number one, as a black person, he is not limit to, limited to just one corner of the world. He has the audacity. It is his birthright that he can go anywhere that he so chooses. And that also it is vital that we get to know each other. We know our neighbors. We know our cultural connectivities. We understand the nuances of who it is that we are. If we don't understand who we are, we'll continue to have shit happen where we have issues of stop Asian hate, where we have issues of Black trans women matter, where we have issues of Black lives matter. And the reason that all of these things are happening is because we don't know shit about each other. We choose to be ignorant towards other people's plights. And literally we have the same oppressor, racism and white supremacy. And until we recognize that, we are all going to continue to be going through the things that we're going through and not recognizing that misogyny and patriarchy is a systemic racism and white supremacy problem. That the issues that we have in terms of religion and the freedom and options of choosing who we are and and who we want to be and identifying by the pronouns that we choose is a systemic problem from racism and white supremacy. And if we don't focus on that, we don't learn about each other, we are only going to continue to see
2: chaos globally imani thank you so much you have been amazing
3: thank you demetria i appreciate you my pg county sister
2: do you think our accents were the same i'll tell you a backstory when i reached out to imani to ask her if she would um, join me on ratchet and respectable her phone was dying so she sent me an audio message when i'm listening to it i got so weepy she sounds like a pg county girl and i haven't been home since november And, you know, like I got used to like spending a lot of time in Maryland during the pandemic. I was there for like three months and then like another six weeks, a different time. I'm used to just going home a little bit more. So I've been like a little bit homesick as much as I love L.A. I'm adjusting to L.A. I want to live in L.A. I just want to go home and, you know, eat proper crabs with the exact correct seasoning of Old Bay. There's an art to it. You wouldn't understand if you're not from home. But I heard her voice and like, I just got like all weepy. Amani was amazing. I hope you enjoyed her interview as much as I did. And I hope to have her back. She was a joy. So that is this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. I didn't say this at the beginning of the podcast, but Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise is still on sale. The hoodies and the mugs are 20% off on the site right now. I've been listing the sizes of everything that's available on my Instagram and my Facebook page. But uh, the hoodies and the mugs are still on sale. So if you, haven't, if you haven't picked one up yet, or in the case of many people, they got a really cute hoodie and their daughter took theirs. If you need to get that girl her own hoodie, or you just need a hoodie for yourself now because your kid stole yours, that's fine. Log on to DemetriaLLucas.com and pick up your goods. That is our episode for this week. As always, thank you for tuning in. If you need some ratchet and respectable in your life between now and the next episode, you can follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Demetria L. Lucas. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again on Friday. Okay. Bye.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie.